If you recall, a couple weeks ago we covered Revelation chapter 6. And um, if you remember, what we covered last week was Revelation 7 with the intermission between the seals. Remember, the Lamb is the only one who had authority or was even worthy to open the, the scroll that had the seven seals. And today's text is entering the seventh seal. But before we do that, let's review those six seals again. Now, you might remember, but I'll say it just for your memory, the first one, the first seal, was this idea of false peace, the false peace that kind of came on the earth with the rider on the white horse. And then second was war. The third was famine. The fourth was death. And uh, five was vengeance, and that's vengeance for um, the martyrs, those who were killed for the faith. And then number six was the day of the Lord. Now, we didn't go into a lot of detail about this at the time, and I, I figured tonight would actually be a good time to review a little bit about what the Bible says about the day of the Lord. So let's look at a few passages real quick from the Old Testament and some from the New and look at this idea of the day of the Lord. So you can turn in your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, 25. And when you look at this passage, we're going to help build this idea of God's wrath, his vengeance, and justice. Now let's look closely at this passage. Deuteronomy 32:35. And this is what it says. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. So what's God saying? He says he's a God of vengeance and justice and when their doom comes, he's swift to execute judgment in his timing. Then go to Psalm 79. Psalm 79, verse 10, which it says this, Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. So there's a sense where, when people were judging God, and you know, in other words, he's saying, Why should the nations actually say this? Why should they say, Where is their God? Well, because well, there's going to be vengeance poured out on these nations who who attack his people, okay? And another passage, Micah, Micah 5.15, one of the minor prophets. Listen to what it says here. And this is talking about God. And, and in anger and wrath, I, God, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Notice God has anger, God has wrath, and the Bible doesn't say anger is bad, actually. I don't know if you know this. It's actually not a sin to get angry. It depends on what you're getting angry about. Because the text says in Hebrews, or sorry, not Hebrews, Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. So all that implies you can be angry and not sin. So there's actually things we should get angry about. You know, Jesus got angry, you know that? And we, we, this is one of the most popular scenes where he gets angry, but he walks into the temple. And what are they doing? They're making money off of selling stuff for sacrifices, doves and lambs. And what does he do? He goes and he flips the tables out of anger. He, he drives a whip of cords and he drives the people out of the temple. Yes, Jesus, the kind and gentle and lowly Savior of the world, got angry. And, and the disciples saw, wow, this reminds me of the psalm where it says, zeal for your house will consume me, will consume me. God, Jesus showed even in the New Testament that he was a God of wrath and anger. But it's holy wrath. This is what's really important. If you guys have never read the book, uh, the, or the Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. Highly recommend that book. If you've never read it, go read that book. Make it your number one read before you graduate high school, okay? The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. And in that book, he makes the case that all of God's attributes should have the adjective on front of it, holy. His holy love, his holy wrath, his holy mercy. In other words, it's set apart. It's different from everyone else, and it's perfectly clean. And God is able to have holy anger and holy wrath. Our next verse is in Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, 17 and 18, where it says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Listen to this. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, and to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall, verse 19, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising sun, for he will come like a rushing stream, 
which the wind of the Lord drives. Wow. A picture of the Lord essentially getting suited up to judge. People say the God of the Old Testament is vengeful and the God of the New Testament is kind and loving. Well, they're the same God of both. God is the same God of the Old and New Testament. It's part of his, we might say, progressive revelation. We see many times in the Old Testament, God is described as long-suffering and merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love for his people. Even Psalm 136, it has this repetition to it where it'll say something about God and say, because his steadfast love endures forever. Something else about God, because his steadfast love endures forever. Something about God helping Israel, because his steadfast love endures forever. It's a psalm that repeats itself. Why? Because the steadfast love of the Lord, it endures forever. Now, notice in Proverbs 25.1, Solomon says this about someone who cares for their enemies. If your enemy is hungry, 25.21, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Notice that is exactly how Jesus treats us. Yes, there's vengeance for enemies at the right time. There is. And vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. The Lord knows how to handle vengeance better than any of us. A lot of us like to get revenge, especially if you have siblings and your sibling does something wrong, you want to do something right back, right? That's how we are. Uh, I think I've shared the story before, but if not, it's one of my favorite of getting vengeance on my sister. That's not cool. I don't promote it, but it's, just, it's funny. But what, I, what did I do? My sister wouldn't let me hang out with her and her friends at her 16th birthday party. So you know what I did? I got smoke grenades, and they're all on the back porch with the with the swimming pool and the screen, and I just throw a bunch of smoke grenades in the backyard and run across the street giggling and laughing. It was hilarious to me. Well, all of her friends were, <coughs> and I could hear, Travis, and I was like, <laughs> you know, uh, so running for my life. Now, that was a lot of fun and goofy memory, and we laugh about it now, right? But that's not the right response at the same time. So we look at those kind of things, and we, we will do things, and sometimes your vengeance can take you further than you want to go. Sometimes people will take vengeance on another, and they don't mean to cause the amount of harm that they do. Maybe you say a word, and words, the proverb says, words of, of, of harm, or of anger, can be like sword thrust to the heart. It, it could cut someone deep. Words have power. You know, that stupid nursery rhyme, it says, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's the biggest lie I've ever heard. That's a lie. Words can kill. Words can kill. But words can heal. The very next part of that verse says, the words of the wise brings healing. So our words matter. The things we do matter. See, God, just like if the enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, give him some to drink. You know God does that? Jesus himself offers himself. He says, I am the bread of life. Come and eat and be satisfied. Or go to uh, Isaiah 55, one of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament. Isaiah 55, 1 to 3. Listen to what it says here. Come. Everyone who thirsts. Notice it doesn't say, come uh, people of Israel only. Right? Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money. In other words, you can't afford it. Come buy and eat. How do you buy if you have no money? What is he saying? You don't have to worry about it. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food incline your ear and come to me hear that your soul may live and i will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast sure love for david so we look at that part of isaiah and we see this invitation god offers this love and this banquet this opportunity to be satisfied and lastly, I'll turn to one more verse. There's a lot more verses we can go to, but we're going to cover a lot in Revelation. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, or never put smoke grenades in your sister's birthday party. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Let the Lord take care of it. Let the Lord take care of it. Now, going to our text tonight, it's going to get pretty heavy. This is all about the wrath of God. And we get uncomfortable in these passages, typically. If you don't know your Bible, or you're a new believer, or you're not a believer, and you're like, I don't know if I want to come to God. I don't know if I want to begin a relationship with God. These kind of things might be off-putting. But we have to not make God in our own image. We have to see God as He truly is and respond to Him as He truly is. 
We should never misrepresent him. What does his word say? Not what does Kravis think, not what you think. What does the word of God say? Well, that's what we're going to examine tonight as we continue through the book of Revelation. Now, these six seals seem simple, but what we're going to see up ahead, these trumpets and bold judgments, they're a bit more complex, and there's a bit more length devoted to these things in the book. So I'm going to try my best every week to try to help these unfold for you and make sense. We had this intermission that just took place last week in Revelation 7 regarding the 144,000 who come from the 12 tribes of Israel. And we see this powerful scene in heaven, this worship that happens in heaven. And we see now that from heaven comes the seventh seal, which brings me to my main idea statement. My main idea statement. God's judgment is impending following the opening of the seventh seal by the Lamb. God's judgment is impending following the opening of the seventh seal by the Lamb. That felt like a long pause, didn't it? Some of you are like, man, when is he going to say something else? This silence is killing me. Right? You were like, what is wrong with that guy? Well, if you notice the very first verse of our text tonight, it says, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. I was so gracious to you, and let it be 30 seconds. But imagine if that was 30 minutes. Some of you would be jumping out the window, save me, I need sound! You know, you'd probably freak out. But notice, heaven had been filled with a lot of noise. Noise of praise, myriads of people. That means tens of thousands upon ten thousands of people singing, shouting, praises to God, saying, worthy are you to receive blessing and honor and glory and wealth and power and might, singing those things to God. And next thing you know, the seal is open. Think about it. The scroll seals open, silence. And it even tells you the amount of time, 30 minutes. It's a long time. Now, this intermission has, has just finished, and we, now, what's in the seventh seal? We've got to ask ourselves that question. What is in the seventh seal? I'm going to give you a preview of the upcoming weeks. All these things are up in the seventh seal. Within the judgment of the seventh seal are the seven trumpet judgments and seven bold judgments. And these lead to the second coming of Christ. I'll say that again. Within the seventh seal is the seven trumpet judgments and the seven bold judgments. And these lead to the second coming of Christ. Now you might be wondering, well, what are those? Well, pay attention in the next few weeks. Because today we'll be reviewing some of the trumpet judgments. Now notice who opens the seventh seal. The text says, when the Lamb. Remember, he's the only one worthy to open the seven seals. When the Lamb opens the seal. This is Christ, the Son of God. He opens the seal. This text says that there's silence in heaven for about half an hour. And notice how torturous those 30 seconds were. Well, maybe it wasn't that bad. But there are other times in life where people face times of extended silence. Maybe someone's in solitary confinement in prison and they find that solitude to be almost torturous to them. Or... Um, like before a verdict is read by the foreman of the courtroom, when, when the verdict is handed down to the jury, there's often a lot of silence as that transfer is taking place. And that's even part of the, the symbolism and the judicial process of waiting for that verdict. Like if you, um, if you for instance, watch the recent court case, uh, the controversial trial on Kyle Rittenhouse, a lot of people were following that. It was about a two- to three-week trial. And even for many days, the jury wouldn't come down with a verdict, part of it because there was political pressure on the outside. And I'm not getting into the details of the case, but if you watched when the verdict came, if you watched when that verdict came, even on the live stream, you got this sense of, like, the tension was as thick as a knife. You could, you could cut it through the screen. I mean, it was just like, it was so tense, because the whole nation was watching this case. And for you who are older, maybe the O.J. Simpson case was the kind of case as well where you're just like, whoa, 
A lot of attention is on this, so there's a lot, so there's a lot of tension. Um, if you go watch the video, which I'm, with your parents, maybe go watch it. Um, we see when the verdict is given, there's like five counts that they all say not guilty on. And when they, he gets to the fifth one, I mean, his lip is trembling, 18-year-old boy, and he falls to the ground weeping. Now, we don't know what that kind of pressure is like. Like, some of y'all might have been like, oh, why is he crying, whatever. But he was about to go to jail for life if he was considered guilty by the jury at 18 years old. And that was a weighty thing for him. That impending, listen here, that impending judgment was a really weighty thing for him. And now when we think about what's happening in heaven, this is much bigger than a, a, a small case in Wisconsin. This is the trial of the universe by the perfect and holy and righteous, vengeful God of the universe. And there's silence. There's silence. Just like before the verdict is about to come down on the earth, there's silence. Now we have to imagine that after the sixth seal had taken place, which is in Revelation 6, let's go read that real quick. Go back to Revelation 6. And look at verse 12 to 17, and just let's look at the sixth seal. I want us to be reminded of what we, had, what we had just read prior to the seventh seal. When he opened the sixth seal, I look and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. Listen to this. And from the wrath of the lamb. What a powerful image. Then they say, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? This is the day of the Lord that we were referencing from the Old Testament. The great day of the Lord. And all that noise had been happening on earth and in heaven, so that silence must have been a great contrast. So now let's go on, draw our attention to verse 2 of chapter 7, Revelation 7, verse 2 through uh, 6. We're going to look at that section real quick. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So we see here this, these seven angels. Now who are these seven angels? I believe these angels were given the particular task of handling the trumpets and announcing these upcoming judgments one at a time. Notice the text even says seven trumpets were given to them, so they had this clear designation, right? They were, they were appointed to carry out the judgment. And some have called these angels presence angels, meaning that they were in the presence of God in particular, and that was their role, and so they were to announce things coming from the presence of God. Now, why trumpets? You might ask, why trumpets? Why not something else? Well, trumpets um, were used largely in Israel's history, right? In public assembly, uh, in battle, think of Jericho, right? You know, they blew the trumpets of Jericho. And also to signal important events on the Israelite calendar for the people when they're around. So now we look at, turn our attention to verse 3 and 4. In verse 3 and 4, this, another angel, this particular one is different from these seven, right? He came, he came and he stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayer of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Now, some people have said uh, that this, that, well, actually, hold on, I'll get to that in a second. Um, essentially, what we see here is an illustration of the prayers of the saints as seen from heaven. So think about it. What's happening in this text? The prayers of all the saints are before the throne. Guys, think about that for a second. Your prayers. The prayers of the saints are before the throne. This is a stunning image. When we look at the Old Testament, a priest would burn incense on the altar, and this altar would be outside the tent, okay? If you have a, a study Bible right now, you might be able to find a place, especially the ESV study Bible I know has it. In the, if you go to the Old Testament section, maybe Exodus or elsewhere, you can see they drew out best they could, based off the description, what the instruments of worship would have looked like. And you see an altar, and outside the tabernacle or the temple was the altar. They did it outside. And then that bowl, that incense, or the censer, for incense, they would take coals from the altar and they would carry it inside into the Holy of Holies, which is the innermost holy place that only the high priest could go once a year. 
And when they would carry it, they would put incense in when they got to the Holy of Holies. That's when the incense would go in, okay? Now, we don't do that anymore because Christ fulfilled those things. Go read Hebrews to figure that out even more clearly. Um, but when we look at this, incense, what does it do, right? Some of us might, you know, might have incense in your house to make your house smell nice instead of a candle or something like that. Incense, right? You burn it, and what? The smoke goes upward. So that's obviously symbolic, right? Our prayers, like incense, go upward. They go to God. There's, there's, there's symbolism in things that help to teach us understand um, what prayer is and, and what, who God is. Look at, let's look at Exodus chapter 30, 34 to 38, and we see actually the, the commands how to deal with incense. 34 to 38. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices. Uh, I actually don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, Stacte and anyaka and galbanum, whatever those are. But there's sweet spices, according to the text. Sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each shall there be an equal part. And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt. Listen to this. Purely and holy, which is really interesting, right? Seasoned with salt. That's a, it's a purifier, right? So it's pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put uh, part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting, where I shall meet with you. Now listen, this incense, it shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. In other words, you're not going to use this in your house or to make you smell good. It's not for that. It's for worship only. This is what God has regulated for worship. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. And now listen, this is actually a judgment. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. So he took this special kind of incense very seriously. They didn't want to mix it, right? with anything that would be unholy in that sense. Not that perfume's unholy, but you get it, right? If this is used for worship, don't use it for things that are not for worship, right? Let's, let's keep that thing separate. And that was the purpose of it. And why? Well, incense is symbolic of worship and prayer. It's a reminder. Listen here. It's a reminder for us. It's a reminder for us to see that the Lord sees our prayers as sweet to Him. You know, Scripture says when we have burdens, for instance, it says, cast your burdens upon the Lord or your anxieties upon the Lord for he cares for you. You know, Jesus makes this invitation, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Like Christ invites us to come to him with our burdens, and he says he will take them upon himself. And so it's a sweet thing to God for us to speak with him in prayer. He characterizes our prayers when we, when we see this instance as precious and beautiful to him. So who is this angel, though? I started to address this a moment ago, and I started to get ahead of myself in my notes. But this angel in verse 3, some people have said, this might be Jesus. Well, I would say uh, not necessarily. Even though Jesus is referred to as an angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, which is an image of the pre-incarnate Christ. And some of you guys are like, pre-incarnate what? Yeah, pre-incarnate means before Jesus came in the New Testament, right, when he took on human flesh, that Jesus appeared to the people of Israel in different scenes, right? So a good example of this. Remember when we studied Joshua? You guys remember that? And after he, they celebrated Passover, you know what happens next? The commander of the Lord's army shows up. And how does Joshua respond? He actually responds in worship. And if you look at John in the end of Revelation, John tries to worship an angel, and the angel rebukes him. He says, you don't worship me. No, we worship the same person. We worship God. And he says, you worship God too. So Clearly, Joshua was not worshiping an angel. He was worshiping Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, who came and appeared to Joshua, the commander of the Lord's armies. So, now we see in verse 5, what do we see in verse 5 of Revelation 7? What does this angel do? He takes a censer, he fills it with fire from the altar, which is typically what a priest would do, right? He does the same thing, this altar in heaven, because remember, the throne is in the temple in heaven. But he, he doesn't take it to the Holy of Holies. He does something different with it. Instead of carrying it all the way into the Holy of Holies, he threw it on the earth. This was an act of judgment. This was an act of judgment. You see, the purpose of the censer was not fulfilling the same purpose it had in the Old Testament. By throwing it down, and, and the, the, the results then were what? As the text says, peals of thunder, rumblings, and flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This demonstrates that judgment has come. The seventh seal has been opened. The silence is done, and now here comes judgment. As Walbert, uh, sorry, Walbert, no, Walvard says, this is in response to the intercession of the suffering saints of the Great Tribulation. Remember seal number five, when God says, I will take vengeance on people that are killed? And, we, and I read a story of a martyr last week. Some, a martyr, by the way, is someone who's killed for testifying to the gospel. 
testifying to the gospel in a foreign country. It still happens today. People are martyred all the time for their faith. So now we see in verse 6 what happens next. Look down in your Bibles. And the text is even giving us a clear transition. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. So here it comes. Here comes judgment, the anticipation. And now this trumpet, it's a call. It's a declaration. And and so here it is. We're going to see now four trumpets today. We're not going to see them all. We'll continue it next week. But four trumpets today. And all of these trumpets, here's the common thread. You ready? Ecological devastation. Okay? Ecological devastation. This is really important. Because the next three after that have nothing to do with ecology. And you're like, wait a second, you're getting all scientific. Yeah, you're going to look at this text, and you're going to see there's specific devastations on all these physical aspects of creation. Let's look at the first one. The very first angel, verse 7, blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up. And all green grass was burned up. Look at the emphasis there. What's the repeated word? Burned up. Burned up. A third of the earth, a third of the trees, and all green grass was burned up. This devastation on the earth affected the earth's vegetation greatly through this judgment. This, this mixed with blood reference, some people are like, well, it's like blood coming down in this judgment too of, of hail and, and fire. Well, not, not necessarily. The text is not necessarily saying that. But it could be that the mixed with blood is a reference to people actually dying from the hail and from the fire. Like that meaning that, you know, a lot, there's a, a high death count, in other words. So a good example, if we go to the plagues in Exodus chapter 9, if you look at verse 18, he says, Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send Get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast. And listen to this, in every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven. And listen to this. This is really important. It's almost exactly what's going to happen in Revelation. Listen to this. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as has never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. So, what do we see here? Powerful judgment of hail and fire upon the earth. We see that in Exodus. And look, God did it in Exodus. He could easily do it in Revelation, right? And what's really important here, guys is, I don't know if you, who here has ever been inside and you hear, you hear hail coming down on the roof. It catches your attention, right? It's, and it's, you're like, okay, it's raining, and all of a sudden you're like, wait, that's a lot heavier than rain. And all of a sudden you're hearing your car going ding, 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 you know, sitting in the car, and you're like, oh, no, oh, no, not good, right? And sometimes hail can be incredibly devastating, even today. But imagine, this is hail and fire like has never been on earth before, and it's, and it's going to just be devastating. Uh, some of this fire, some people speculate that this could also come from a volcanic eruption of some kind, to a major volcanic eruption with the fire. But either way, the Lord will do what he will. He's, he's miraculous. He can, it's totally fine for God to do the supernatural miraculous because he's a supernatural being. It makes sense, right? Verse 8, let's look at verse 8. We see another devastation happening, which is the second trumpet. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, notice the simile here, something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. So many want to give this a symbolic interpretation, okay? Um, But it is entirely entirely plausible to interpret this literally. If God did these things in Egypt, it's not much for him to do it here. Now, some people say this great mountain, something like a great mountain, symbolically just means a big government, right? And that's how they interpret this text. I don't interpret it this way. 
But essentially, this, this means, um, I, I would say, probably if we could easily imagine this, plausibly, a massive meteor landing on Earth. It's not hard to imagine that. Uh, we make movies about it, right? Apocalyptic movies about it. It's pretty plausible. Uh, actually, there's a Jet Propulsion Laboratory of NASA. They do these studies of NEOs, near-Earth objects. Near-Earth objects are asteroids and comets with orbits that bring them to within 120 million miles of the sun, which means they can circulate through the Earth's orbital neighborhood. Most near-Earth objects are asteroids that range in size from about 10 feet to nearly 25 miles across. 25 miles, that's huge. That's bigger than mountains. <laughs> so we look at this. It's pretty plausible that that could happen. Now, when it talks about here, um, Notice the text. This was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. John MacArthur said this. He said, this may refer to an event known as red tides caused by billions of dead microorganisms poisoning the water as a result of the meteor's collision, or it could be literal blood as a sign of judgment, which also happened with the Nile River, if you remember, with the people of Israel and the people of Egypt, right? So it's not hard to imagine that. So... Walbert talks about interpreting this, and I want to talk to you about interpretation. The interpreter of these in later judgments is constantly faced with the problem, okay, here's the problem, of how far do you take these judgments, right? How, how far do you take the literal and the symbolic? The point of view adopted here is that these judgments should be interpreted literally as far as the literal interpretation can reasonably be followed. I'm trying to be reasonable, right? And I think it's really important. You, you'll see a lot of people who preach the Revelation that can be very over-the-top and dramatic. Some person, which I would say, label this person a heretic, would be someone like John Hagee, who when the blood moons were coming around, which is a, a kind of a normal thing, he wrote books about it to make money off of it, and would take these prophecies way out of context and say, oh, judgment's coming this year because the red moon, nothing happened. You know, don't listen to those kind of false prophets. They're meant to lead you astray. And, and they're, they only have in mind their, uh, their bottom dollar. So now... When we look at this, the verse 10, let's go on to the next trumpet. The third angel blew his trumpet. And a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Now, Wormwood, if you don't know what that is, it is a bitter plant that grows in waste places and is typically in the Old Testament a symbol of calamity a symbol of disaster. Proverbs uses this to talk about the adulterous woman uh, that could tempt uh, Solomon's son. Remember, Proverbs is written to Solomon's son. And he says, hear my son, hear my son. And, he's, and he says, look, her lips, the adulterous woman, her lips might taste like honey, but in the end, she's as bitter as wormwood. So what's he saying? Sin might be fun for a little while, but it ultimately brings calamity. That's the case with any sin, of course, if we even keep going toward any sin. It could be gambling, it could be anger, it could be lust or pride. It's always going to bring calamity. It's going to bring bitterness in your life. So this text is saying, look, there's such great calamity on the earth. This, they called this star Wormwood, and it poisoned the waters of the earth. And notice it killed people because of it. People died. We need water to drink. So the earth is being affected in so many ways. Springs of water, the seas... The earth burned up. But now let's go to verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now, this judgment is where one-third of the heavens are completely dark in the sky. This is a direct judgment, and it's visualized for all the people. They, get to see, they see this happen on a, obviously, daily and nightly basis. So you might be asking, what does this mean? And obviously, this is some sort of massive devastation on earth. But even more than that, as Walbert says, he says, these first four trumpets are not only judgments in themselves, but they are warnings of the last three trumpets that will be far more severe in character. Notice how it's described in verse 13. Look at verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Whoa, whoa, whoa which is a word of judgment, like, beware, look out. Notice it's three woes. We've had four trumpets or seven trumpets. These woes are about the next three trumpets. 
Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So you think this is bad? You've seen nothing yet. You think these judgments are heavy? Just wait. Wait for the next three. So John hears this eagle crying, crying out with a loud voice. And I think this is a fulfillment of prophecy once again. I want to look at a few prophecies. Uh, Matthew 24, 22. Um, this one we've read already, but I think I'm going to regularly bring this before you. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of, oh, wait, sorry, I skipped to verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. Remember, that judgment's going to be huge. Verse 22, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So, we look at that passage. That's one example of the return of the Lord. But Daniel 9, Daniel 9, 26 and 27, look at this passage. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and that week represents seven years. I know you're like, wait, a week means seven days. Well, it means seven years according to Daniel, if you're following the context of Daniel. And for half of the week, so three and a half years, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Listen to this. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator, until the Antichrist is judged. And then we go to Joel chapter 2, 1 and 2. Joel 2, 1 and 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Look at that, a trumpet. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Listen to this. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them. Through the years of all generations. So we see this judgment very clearly, right? This judgment in this text. And we see it's a... a a, dark, a darkness that comes on the earth. So, like I said, the first four trumpets deal with the events on the earth in the physical world. And when we look at this, uh, I want to point some things out, just kind of in thematic kind of overview here. There's an obvious beauty and material benefit of the trees and the vegetation all over the earth for oxygen and for food, right? As well as blessing. We have a blessing of having easy access to water. We can go turn on the faucet and drink. We can go to a water fountain and drink, right? There's easy access to water. But this is all gone. These are all gifts from God, and this is what we call common grace. Say common grace. Common grace. Common grace, common grace is accessible to everybody, meaning God has provided for everyone his grace morally. So that means even someone who's never heard the law of God has the law of God written on their hearts and their conscience. So I like to use this example because it's a helpful example, but I know of a man who was sharing the gospel with tribal people, people who had never met a Christian, never seen someone with paler skin than them. And he, he's, he's recalling, you know, going through the Bible, hearing creation of Christ, and, he, and when they get to the law of God that you shall not murder, and he realizes this was said long ago, he's like, I've known this all along. And when he asked him why, he said, because one, a man had stolen my wife, and I went and I found him, and I killed him. And I remember going into the forest, into the river, to wash my hands of his blood, and I would keep washing, and I kept feeling like it was there. What's he saying? My hands are, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of murder. He knew he was guilty of murder, and he never heard the fifth command or the sixth commandment that says, you shall not murder. He never heard that. But he knew it because it was written on his heart. God's common grace. His common grace. How else has God shown his common grace? Intellectually. So in other words, we're not all as dumb as we could be. Seriously. There are really smart people that don't believe in God, brilliant people who don't believe in God, inventors, amazing minds. And that's God's common grace to them. But there's also God's physical provision. You know, God says, I make it rain on the just and the unjust. Some of us, we're, we don't like rain. We get annoyed at rain. But you know, rain is really important, right? It helps us grow our food, <laughs> right? Water does. And so because of that, what's, he, what's God communicating? 
he gives to everyone, all mankind, life, breath, and everything. Go read Acts 17. It's in there. God shows common grace. But then there's special grace. It's different. So if common's for everyone, special is only for a few people, right? And God shows special grace to those who trust in him by faith. So the moon and the stars are blessings from God, and they manifest the glory of God. Like, for instance, in Psalm 19, 1 and 2, that says the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And then in, in Romans 1, 20, we see how they manifest the glory of God. The text says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So students, we see God's glory is manifested in these things. And so we should give him the glory, but mankind often does not. And then also think of Jeremiah. Jeremiah spoke of these things in Jeremiah 31, 35 to 36. He says this, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. It's, he's responsible for it. He did it. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. So what's God saying? I fix this order. And if I fix this, nothing can happen to you because I've made a promise to you as well. I've made these fixed promises to you. It's going to stay. My promises will go to the end. So we see God is a promise keeper. And he even exhibits that through his creation. Now, these judgments are so powerful um, that even the blaspheming unbelievers, they can't help but recognize the sovereignty of God. They can't help but recognize the glory of God. We saw that in Romans 1.20, right? We see that really clearly. Having an issue with my notes, I can't scroll down. Two seconds. Let me see. Sorry, guys. I guess I should print it out if it's going to give me issues, huh? Okay. Now it's working. So, just in reflection, we see this evidence of God's sovereignty, his power, his wrath. It's on full display in these texts. But I want to remind you, the text of Scripture says that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He's not like, ha, I got you, right? God, God he does get angry and he does show wrath, but he, he wishes that all would reach repentance. Not all do, not all will. In Ezekiel, it talks about God not delighting in the death of the wicked. But notice here, I want to actually lay out this, because some of you guys might have, a, like I said, have a problem with this, with hell and with judgment. You know hell glorifies God? Have you ever thought of that? You might think, okay, heaven glorifies God because people that are there who've been saved sing his praises, right? And angels are there, they sing his praises. That's heaven. But have you ever thought of hell being a place that God is glorified? Maybe you haven't. I want, you to, I want you to think over that for a second. Uh, Dustin Benge is a guy I, I follow. He's, a, he's an author, a writer, a great uh, theologian. He asks this question, how does hell, how does judgment glorify God? And he answers in seven ways. Listen to these seven ways. His word is kept. Think about that. If God promised judgment, he keeps his word. He keeps his word. His word is kept. Number two. His warnings are true. Like, God's not lying. He's not like, ha, tricked you, there's no hell, everyone's going to heaven. God doesn't joke like that. He's warning, and he's serious about it. His warnings are true. Number three, his worth is upheld. His worth is upheld. Think about it. If God is who he says he is, and he's as special as he declares to be, and he is, and maybe it's better to say since he is, then he proves his worth, by heaven, by being in his presence, by creating a new heavens and new earth. And he proves his worth by saying, look, justice will be done. Number four, his grace is magnified. You might be like, how is hell show us that God's grace is magnified? Well, think about it for just a second. If you've been sitting in the darkness a long time and a light comes on, or you see a light from far away. I don't know, maybe if you've been camping later night, you're in the middle of nowhere, and you don't see any lights or anything for a while. Or maybe you've been on the road. I know I, I've traveled on the road. Uh, ski trip's a good example. Just went on the ski trip, and I'm like, man, you know, we're getting a little low on gas. 
going through Texas. There's like nothing around here. It's all dark. And all of a sudden, I see an exit. I'm like, oh, okay, good. We can get gas, right? There's a sense of relief about that, right? Well, in the same way, in the midst of so much darkness, when we think about judgment, when we think about hell, God's grace is magnified even greater. Like, God's grace becomes that much more valuable to us. Like, why would God show me this undeserved kindness? I don't deserve it. I deserve hell. You deserve hell. But God is gracious. And so what do we do when we see that he spares us from the wrath to come? That he says, look, you and I can experience his gift of salvation. We can experience his gift of life. And he gives it to us freely. That's what grace is. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. It's something we don't deserve. But God gives it to us freely, so it's magnified. Number five, his justice is satisfied. His justice is satisfied. Number six, his enemies are defeated. In Matthew's gospel, he says, I have made hell for Satan and his demons. His enemies are ultimately defeated. Remember in Genesis 3.15, the proto-euangelion, the very first proclamation of the good news, is he says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bruise his heel. Let's talk about Christ defeating Satan. Let's talk about Christ defeating the curse. Our enemies are defeated because of hell. Number seven, lastly, his holiness is displayed. God's holiness is displayed. Now, when we think about this, you might reflect on this text and think, I'm not going to believe all this, this stuff. Maybe you're a doubter in here. You have doubts or questions. You're like, how could these miraculous things happen? Really? Are you sure you're reading that right? Yeah, I, I am reading it right. You see, if God can do something like resurrect his son from the dead, he can do anything. Jesus was brutally crucified, and he rose again from the grave. That's the miracle that matters, right? And Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. If the resurrection didn't happen, we're all lost. We're dead in our sins. We can prove the resurrection happened. There are ways to do that. We talked about this this past summer, right? And if the resurrection can happen, nothing's too hard for God. And many times throughout Scripture, it says nothing's too hard for God. In the same way, there's nothing too hard for God as it relates to judgment as well. Maybe these cultural ideas of naturalism or scientism, meaning I can only know things through science or I can only know things through the study of the natural world, we can know things beyond that too. Don't let those prevent you from studying the scriptures and knowing God for who he is. So in conclusion, here's a concluding statement. Okay, God has clearly revealed himself in creation and one day he will reveal himself in judgment with greater clarity. Will you escape the wrath to come? God has clearly revealed himself in creation. Clearly, right? Romans 1.20, we've already talked about this. And one day, he will reveal himself in judgment with greater clarity. In other words, these type of judgments, John is saying to us and reporting to us, it's going to be so obvious, people are going to desperately cry out to be hidden from the wrath of God. I don't want that to be you. I'm, I'm serious. So you've got to ask yourself, will I escape the wrath to come? Ask yourself that question in your heart. Answer it in your heart. Will I escape the wrath to come? Am I a child of God? Am I a believer? You see, in application in this message, for you believers in this room, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10, you know what it says? For you as a believer, let this be a comfort to you. For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. If you're a believer in Christ, meaning you've trusted that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is who he says he is, that he died on the cross for your sins and was a perfect sacrifice as your substitute, his blood shed for you and he resurrected from the dead, and you've placed your faith and trust in that alone, relied on Christ alone, and you've repented and come to him. That means you're saved. That means you're a believer. That means you'll escape the wrath to come and that you've obtained salvation. I hope that's you today. You know, one of you asked me uh, on the QR code, I have those up and I'm glad you guys took advantage of it. One of you guys asked me, what does it mean when Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain? And while I'm not doing an exposition of Philippians 1.21, I think it's a great opportunity to point you as a believer. 
What's the purpose of living? It's Christ. To live is Christ. And as we talked about the martyrs last week, and to die is gain. To be with Christ is gain. You see, when we look at the end times in the last days, we look at the coming of Christ, we look at ourselves, and we think of even that verse, to live is Christ, to die is gain. We've got to ask ourselves, how am I living now, knowing that the imminent return of Christ is coming? It's coming soon. How am I living? Ask yourself that question. How am I living? Maybe if you're an unbeliever in this room, this text is a warning to you. It's a warning. I want you to feel good. I want, you to, I want to preach a message that encourages you. But if you're an unbeliever in this room, the only encouragement I can give you is flee from the wrath to come and repent and trust in Christ. And that's a good encouragement because you don't realize right now the danger, the, the warning signs that are saying, hey, look out. You're about to go off a cliff and you can't, once you're off the cliff, there's no going back. There's no like parachute or safety net. Once you're off the cliff, once your life is over, you have to trust Christ before then. There's no second chance after you're dead. There's no purgatory. You must flee the wrath to come by fleeing to the one who bore God's wrath for you. Have you fled to Christ? I don't know if you've seen that movie, The Pilgrim's Progress, but in The Pilgrim's Progress, or read the book, the the new animated movie, when he sees the cross and he runs to the cross, and he has this massive burden of his sin on his back. It's a powerful scene. He gets to the cross and it rolls off his back and goes into the tomb where Christ had been buried and risen again and it was sealed. It was gone forever. And the burden and weight of your sin, which by the way, the Bible says for the wages of sin is death. In other words, you owe God a sin debt. If you're an unbeliever. And that sin debt weighs on you. Heavy. And you know what I'm talking about. If you're a believer in this room, you know what I'm talking about because that sin debt's been uplifted. But if you're an unbeliever in this room, you know what I'm talking about because it bears on you. Whenever you yell at your mom and dad or your siblings, whenever you curse them in your heart or hate somebody, you know what that sin is I'm talking about, the weight, the penalty. And I want to encourage you, run to Jesus. He, he, he welcomes you with open arms. He takes you as you are and he cleans you up. He makes you right with him. So if you've not done that today, I plead with you, do that today. Don't hesitate. There are so many people in here that know the gospel. Turn and ask your neighbor to help you understand this gospel more clearly. You ask your life group leader tonight. Don't leave this room without settling that. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time together. I pray that these students will take seriously the necessity to throw themselves on the mercy of Christ. That they might flee the wrath to come. We don't know when that day is coming. We don't. It's no use trying to guess it because, Lord, you say we'll never figure it out. But just as you fulfilled so many prophecies in the Old Testament about your first coming, and they happened, we know and trust that one day you'll be coming again. And so, Lord, we pray that every person in this room that's not a believer in you will will flee the wrath to come by fleeing to the cross and resting in the crucified and risen Savior and Lord, your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.